0: jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello travellers, I'm Joe Francis Penn, and in today's episode I'm talking about desert nights and city days. My experience of Australia. So Australia is truly a land of two halves. There is nature in all its diversity, from the vast outback to the ancient rainforest, from the coral reef to the desert. And then there are the cities, from Sydney's Harbour Bridge to Melbourne's coffee culture, where multicultural Aussies work and play in the lucky country. It's also the land of opportunity, with golden-haired surfers riding the waves on white sand beaches. And yes, that really that stereotype really is true. (laughs) It also has a rich mining industry and a great standard of living for many people. But it also has a dark history, resulting in the racism and inequality that still pervades the country. So in this episode, I explain my complex relationship with Australia, what I learned from travelling there and also living there uh, for nearly five years, and why I had to leave. It's hard to encompass such a vast place, but I also include some thoughts on where to visit, like some of my favourite places, uh, what to eat and how to navigate some of the Australian cultural differences. 1. Australia gave me escape. For a while. I fell in love with the idea of Australia when I watched the Thornbirds TV miniseries in the mid 1980s and later read the book by Colleen McCulloch. It gave me visions of the vast outback, so different from my urban living and the green rolling hills of the southwest of England. The fires that destroyed the land, threatened the ranch, killing all in its path, and of course, Father Ralph de Brecassart, the attractive priest. But that's another story. In the year 2000, when I found myself burned out as an IT consultant in London, those visions of the outback returned and I decided to go to Australia. Surely I would find escape on the other side of the world. I was sick from working too hard, drinking too much and living a life that made me into someone I didn't want to be. I craved silence and space. I wanted to escape to a wide open sky and a vast ocean. I wanted to be alone and find myself again. I flew into Perth in Western Australia and learned to scuba dive, which I covered in episode 8, and travelled north through Western Australia to Darwin and then down through the Northern Territory to Alice Springs over a period of months. I travelled alone and camped at Exmouth on the edge of Ningaloo Reef, where I snorkelled with whale sharks. From my journal. I'm adrift at the moment, part of no one and nothing. All is empty, waiting to be filled again. I want to stretch the boundaries of loneliness. I am solitary here with the wind and the overcast sky, the rustle of yellow palms, dry from the sun, the blowing of my gas flame, and the cicadas. The smell of jacaranda overlaid with barbecue smoke and the haze of mosquito coils. Tomorrow I will rise with the sun and be in the blue again. From Exmouth I headed north in a small group tour to Broome and on to the beehive rocks of the Bungle Bungles, or Pernalulu National Park, and then further to Darwin in the Northern Territory, staying at sheep stations and outback ranches along the way. I remember swimming in waterholes, keeping an eye out for freshies, the freshwater crocs, which are the small ones, (laughs) the distinctive markings on the squibbly gum trees, and a wild peacock at a truck stop incongruous as it picked out scraps of Mrs Mack's meat pies thrown from the road trains on their journey across the vast country. It's a long way to the top end. And it's funny because I have just encompassed in a paragraph a huge expanse of space. And if you look on a map at Australia and go from Perth to Darwin, (laughs) there's a lot of road, a lot of driving and, uh, yeah, I, I loved parts of it, but also parts of it are, you know, the landscape just passing out a window as I travelled with a lot of space in between. <laughs> so Darwin was wild. It had an edge, a feeling that something was about to kick off. Or maybe it's just that I had emerged from what felt like weeks in the middle of nowhere. I was 25 and looking for company, if you know what I mean. The summer up there is called suicide season because it's so hot, that's what you feel like doing. They have incredible electrical storms and full moon beach parties on Mindel Beach, overlooking the Timor Sea. I almost stayed in Darwin. It touched a primitive chord, but I was running out of money with so much more to see. And I found a great quote from Jan Morris uh, in A Writer's World about Darwin. This is a town that prides itself upon its frontier manners, its horse-rug flavour, its traditions of bludgeon, horn and hoof, the weird animal life that leaps and wallows about it, kangaroo to buffalo, crocodile to dingo. Never did a town greet its visitors more boisterously. Never did the beer flow quite so fast. Nowhere is the traveller treated with such an easy, lolloping, happy-go-lucky, careless and gregarious courtesy. The Northern Territory is my favourite place in Australia, because it really is so different from anywhere else. It has that deep red earth of the outback and ancient rock paintings from Aboriginal ancestors. I visited Manialaluk Aboriginal community and painted my skin with the red ochre of the earth. And there's a photo on the blog post uh, and the show notes that go with this. uh, If you want to have a look at a picture of me covered in red paint. (laughs) They probably thought I was mad, but it meant something to me. I highly recommend Kakadu National Park, which you can get to from Darwin, where we slept on the top of the van to stay out of reach of the salties, the saltwater crocodiles, and those are the big ones with the powerful jaws that will that will eat you. Um, I also enjoyed kayaking, Catherine Gorge, and sleeping in swag out in the desert near Uluru and Katatuta, uh, which used to be in Uluru, obviously used to be known as Ayers Rock, but Uluru is the... Um, I guess the local name that it's now called by. And uh, Swag, if you if you don't know, it's sort of this um, mattress inside a waterproof sleeping bag and then your sleeping bag goes inside and it's just a wonderful way to sleep out uh, in the desert. I loved it. I still remember it very vi- vividly. I lay under the big sky I had dreamed of with the stars of the Southern Cross above, a vast open space where I felt insignificant on the face of the earth, and I revelled in that feeling. I could do anything, and who would care? That was freedom, at least for a while, and the deep red of the earth is still my favourite colour watching dawn over the gigantic red rock of Uluru can be special if you can avoid the many tourists. But I particularly enjoyed walking around the rock in the quiet during the day. It felt special and I poured out water as an offering to the spirits there. And uh, certainly back when I was there, you could still climb the rock, but it really was culturally disrespectful to climb. And I, I don't even know if they let people climb anymore, but uh, certainly not a necessary thing. Walking around it was, uh, was beautiful. And I bought a mulga wood snake, which I have here in my office, still with me today. It became my totem animal after an encounter with a python at a reptile sanctuary. And I learned of the woggle the Rainbow Snake or Creation Serpent, a dreamtime creature known in the southwest of Australia and misunderstood by the early missionaries. But escape from the real world is only ever temporary, especially with a depleted bank account. So after Alice, I headed to Sydney for a few months during the 2000 Olympics and worked on an IT help desk. I lived in Glebe, which is a great area for food, and I could walk to the centre of town. Sydney is one of the great international cities of the world, and my love of architecture and culture was sated by the Opera House and everything that was going on during the Olympic period. It really was fantastic. And I used to walk around the rocks and Darling Harbour, and it was just a magical time. I learned why mass sporting events are so powerful and felt that euphoria of chanting together in a crowd. And I sang along with Advance Australia Fair, even though I wasn't Australian, and Vanessa Amorossi's Absolutely Everybody, which is the anthem, in my mind, the anthem of those Olympics. Uh, and if you know that song, it's in your head now. <laughs> I cheered Cathy Freeman and Ian Thorpe, the torpedo, and drummed along with the crowd at Bondi Beach Volleyball. Yes, I did attend beach volleyball on Bondi it was fantastic and I walked the cliffs to Manly which is one of the uh, great walks in Sydney and hiked at the Blue Mountains. I enjoyed everything the city had to offer but as great as Sydney is it's the same as any city. My life became work, drinking, casual relationships and I found myself in the same situation as I had in London. A quote from John kabat wherever you go there you are. Once again, my solution was to resign and leave. I headed to far north Queensland to the ancient Daintree Rainforest and then travelled down the east coast, scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef, whitewater rafting on the Tully River, and sailing in the Whitsundays. Sundays. But it wasn't enough. I flew to New Zealand in December 2000 with the intention of returning home to England when my money ran out but it was actually over a decade before I moved back to England for good. And I will save that story for another episode. (laughs) That will be my New Zealand episode uh, coming up, I promise. (laughs) So I do have in the show notes that go with this episode a lot of book recommendations And uh, I've actually obviously put the book covers and also descriptions of the books, but I'm not going to read descriptions of the books within this podcast. So, But I will give you some titles of my favourite books in these different areas. So some books that evoke the landscape of Outback Australia and give a sense of its dangers. So first, obviously, The Thornbirds by Colleen McCulloch. I think it's an absolute classic. Um, The Lost Man by Jane Harper, which is a recent book. And Jane Harper is a fantastic Australian writer. And I like all of her books. But in this one, uh, a rancher is found dead in the outback, one of three brothers. And he should have known. The dangers of the outback. So what happened to him? And it's it's a good uh, sort of murder mystery, but gives a great sense of of the dangers out there. The songlines by Bruce Chatwin, another classic, um, which which is sort of Chatwin's search for the meaning of the ancient dreaming tracks of the Aboriginal people. Um, and it's again one of those classic books that drove me to Australia. And I, I must confess to still being a little bit in love with Bruce Chatwin, uh, thirty years after his death. Uh, tracks by Robin Davidson. Uh, there has been a film of this since the book came out. But essentially, Robin uh, trekked across 1700 miles of the Australian desert with uh, some camels and a dog. And uh, that, a lot of these are kind of more deep and meaningful searches for, for self, I guess. And also breath by Tim Winton, which is um, on the wild, lonely coast of Western Australia, two thrill-seeking teenage boys fall under the spell of a veteran big wave surfer. And yeah, so that's a kind of different part of Australia. But I do think the surfing and Tim Winton is an excellent Australian writer. Also, of course, you can always watch the film Australia with Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman for some great shots of the outback and historical Darwin. So those are some recommendations for reading and watching uh, for that outback side. Two, the dark side of the lucky country. Another quote from Jan Morris in A Writer's World. Australia was not built by kindness, nor even by idealism. Convicts, not pilgrims, were its father's. Before I arrived in Perth, I understood that some Australians were descendants of the early convicts and settlers from Great Britain in the 18th century, and many more immigrants from all over the world have settled in the years since. Modern Australia is diverse and multicultural. But I didn't know much about the Australian Aboriginal people, one of the oldest continual civilizations on earth. I certainly didn't know what the British had done to them until I arrived in Perth and went to the Museum of Western Australia, and I didn't realise the level of inequality that still exists today in terms of health and standards of living. In 2017, The Guardian published a map of massacres committed by the colonial British, the untold history of Australia painted in blood. But the massacres were only one thing. In the early 1900s, the British removed children, known as the Stolen Generation, from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander parents and raised them in Christian missions and foster homes. They deliberately tried to, quote, breed out black skin and a race they considered, quote, inferior. At the closing ceremony of the Sydney Olympics in 2000, the band Midnight Oil sang their protest song, Beds Are Burning, while wearing black T-shirts saying, Sorry. But it was eight years later in 2008 when Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd apologised for past mistreatment to the Stolen Generation, this blemished chapter in our nation's history. There is a shadow side to every culture, and it is certainly not a feature of Australia alone. But if you travel there, realise that there is another story, another perspective from a people who have a longer history on the land. What is considered to be progress, settlement and civilization to some Western minds could be thought of as invasion, subjugation and dispossession to others. Reflect on the differences that still exist despite Sorry Day and be aware of the racism that still runs through the country. You can help by supporting Aboriginal and Indigenous businesses and settlements like Maniallaluk in the Northern Territory and listen to stories from other perspectives. Obviously, I can't talk of this from a personal perspective as a uh, white British woman. But I wanted to mention this as something very important that is often overlooked when you travel in Australia and just see the dazzling white beaches and the wonderful standard of living that many people have. For some books on this, uh, some of the historical stuff, but also some of the modern day things, uh, try The Secret River by Kate Grenville, which is a historical novel about the settlement of Australia by ex-convicts and the inevitable violence of clashing civilizations. Tomo and Hawk by Bryce Courtney. Oh my goodness, there is a scene in this book, I'm not going to tell you it, but um, that still sticks in my mind devastating scene set in the rocks in Sydney that still I, I makes me almost want to cry. Uh, but it's Bryce Courtney, fantastic writer. Uh, this book uh, and the series, it's a I think three book series, features two brothers separated in childhood but finding each other again to experience the early years of the colonies. Uh, another couple of books, Carpentaria by Alexis write a landmark tale of aboriginal people living in the gulf country of northwestern queensland and follow the rabbit-proof fence which is also a movie Uh, doris pilkinton noogie garamara says this extraordinary story is based on the actual experiences of three girls who fled from the repressive life of moor river native settlement following the rabbit-proof fence back to their homelands. So those are some books to read uh, to give you more of a sense of that. Three. Australia changed my mindset around what I could achieve. English people have a sense of hierarchy that is ingrained in our culture, and I feel it as part of my very soul. It is about class and money and privilege, and it's hard to explain, but you feel it if you live here. When I attended the University of Oxford, I became aware that although I walked among other students, I would never quite be like them because I came from a different class, a lower class, let's say. I talked about it in episode 12 um, when I shared my experiences of Oxford, and that sense of class and what is appropriate is wound deep within me. But that sense of class is almost completely missing in Australia, at least as a white, educated, English-speaking woman. It's almost the other way around – They have this thing called tall poppy syndrome, which is more about pulling people down if they think too much of themselves. This attitude of giving something and someone a fair go helped me redefine myself at a time when I needed it the most. I hated my IT job. I wanted to write, but when I looked at the way the publishing industry worked, it just didn't suit my need for independence and my business sense. If I had tried to write in those early years in the UK, I know I couldn't have escaped the expectations of an industry that has an ingrained class attitude and a way of doing things. But I was in Oz and I learned from Australian entrepreneurs about what was possible I started writing my first book when I lived in Brisbane, and the can-do attitude of the Aussies spurred me on to become an independent creator, one of the rising maker movement who choose to use the internet to sell direct to customers. I started my own publishing company in 2008, and three years later I quit my consulting job to make a living with my writing. I couldn't have done it without the Aussie irreverent attitude. You want to do something? Well, get on with it, mate. And no, I'm not even going to try an Australian accent. (laughs) In England, I would have been too stifled by expectation and the way that things have always been done. So I will be forever grateful to Australia for giving me the ability to break out of my own British cultural stereotypes. 4. Australia taught me about home. When I worked in Sydney in 2000, I was offered the chance to be sponsored for citizenship by the company I worked for. And later in 2010, I attended my husband's Australian citizenship ceremony. He still has Australian citizenship and uh, New Zealand as well as British. It is a great country, but it never felt like my home. However, it did teach me what I didn't want, and in that way, helped me to find home again. Many English people dream of moving to Australia with visions of beaches and ocean. But English people don't actually know what to do with constant sunshine and heat. We are conditioned to go outside and enjoy the sun if it's out, So I found Brisbane in particular very tiring because I had to resist the urge to go outside all the time. And if you do go outside, the sun is fierce, even in winter up in Queensland. I also craved gentle rain and grey skies, which may seem odd, but there's something cultural about the weather and how it makes you feel. I still write to the sound of rain and thunderstorms. I could never relax when it was sunny out, and yet walking in Queensland was so difficult because it was too hot and humid and you would just walk out the door and be covered in sweat. Plus, you can't even sit on the ground to eat your lunch. (laughs) Really, this is a tip, uh, especially in those northern uh, states in England you can sit and eat a sandwich on the ground and the most damage you'll get is a wet bottom our ants are very small and friendly and they might come and get a crumb or two but ants in Queensland particularly will come and bite you and it will sting a lot uh, I remember we did try this this is, a, this is a real anecdote you know we went we tried to go for a hike uh in Queensland and we were trying to have our lunch and <laughs> Jonathan got bitten by one of those fire ants and uh, he said it was it was one of the worst pains he's ever had so don't sit on the ground in uh, Queensland and have a picnic uh, this is advice for british people who just tend to sit sit anywhere and have a picnic i'm not sure about other cultures <laughs> from my journal everything here is always in primary colors i miss the rain I miss the contrast of the seasons. I cannot be where it is forever hot and sunny. It doesn't suit my character. I need change and difference. There are no gentle parts to Australia. It is harsh by nature and by temperament. It is bigger in every sense, including the weather. I lived in Brisbane during the floods of 2010 when the floodwaters covered an area larger than France and Germany combined. Jonathan was away at a conference in Canberra and I was due to go and join him after work one weekend. That Friday, we were all evacuated from the centre of Brisbane city centre as the dam burst upriver and the waters rose and we were all just sent home and it was was like a coming apocalypse, a slow-motion crash because we knew it was coming. It was just going to take a number of hours and we all got evacuated. And back home later that evening, I filled the bath with water and I filled lots of containers with fresh water as the sounds of the helicopters, uh, you know, went overhead. And then the lights went out and the power went. And I was, I was sitting there on my own. Because I was going away, it was great. We'd taken the cat to the uh, cattery, so our cat was safe. I knew the cat was safe uh, away from the floods. And so I decided I didn't want to sit there as, the, you know, the power went and I was on my own. And uh, so I decided to try and get out early. So I drove to the airport every time I turned down a road there'd be a flood and I have to turn around and drive another way but I eventually got to the airport through this circuitous route you know avoiding the floodwaters and I I got out before it really hit Brisbane and uh, you can look at that online but there were there was huge amounts of damage uh, in Queensland so as I flew out I looked down at those floods stretching off into the distance Uh, The the papers, the media at the time say 90 towns and over 200,000 people were affected with 33 deaths attributed to those floods. And this type of weather, this flooding and also the bugs (laughs) is why the Queenslander houses are so popular in Queensland. They're built on stilts to keep them up high and have verandas. And what I learned in America are these sort of shotgun houses where you can open the front door and the back door and they, they're directly opposite. It's the same with the Queenslanders for the uh, airflow to go through. Now, we had one of those. We lived in Ipswich outside of um, Brisbane until we moved uh, back into town, into Indrapilly, And I love that Queenslander. And I've put a photo in the show notes. Uh, but yeah, they're, <laughs> they're very useful in floods and also to keep, keep the bugs off. And they have these little tin hats on um, to stop the termites and things coming. It certainly is... (laughs) not uh, a gentle place. Now at the other end of the spectrum, the fire is incredibly serious. And we were in Melbourne for a friend's wedding in 2009 on what became known as Black Saturday. We stepped outside the hotel less than a kilometre from the centre of town, a walk we would easily do in normal conditions. But the air was a furnace and we quickly felt very ill from the heat, even though we wore hats and you know, covered our skin. And we walked in the shadows of the buildings and found refuge in the aquarium near the penguin enclosure to cool down. Now, over that weekend, thousands of homes were destroyed and 164 people died in the bushfires, with more dying later from injuries. And I've been in that level of heat only once before in Luxor in Egypt. And I've never forgotten how it feels. I mean, your brain feels like it's going to boil and your body. Wants to shut down, essentially. So Australia is well known for its many venomous snakes, spiders, crocs and other wildlife. But that won't be what kills you down under. The weather might well so take it seriously and i mean that uh, you'll hear lots of stuff about all these dangerous creatures and sure you you have to be careful enough but as i said i'm more concerned i was more concerned about the ants <laughs> and also the weather uh, you do have to take these things seriously if you're a walker which you know i am if you're a hiker you do have to really prepare um Uh, look after yourself in those environments or you know go with uh, certified companies that know how to deal with a lot of these situations but certainly I uh, you know I I actually did tourist things to look at snakes and crocs and other wildlife and never had an issue with them but I did have a lot of issues with the weather (laughs) I am British after all Uh, So I also struggled with the lack of walking in the urban environment. So um, the country is huge, obviously, and the cities are very spread out. Australia is more like the USA and it's designed for people with cars, whereas UK and New Zealand are more walker friendly, much uh, smaller areas. Uh, more I guess more densely populated in parts but you know somewhere like New York I feel at home San Francisco because um, to a point I guess more more somewhere like New York um, New Orleans where I could just walk around and I didn't need a car uh, which is you know how I live here in in the UK so I felt in Australia everything takes a long time to get to you know people wouldn't think twice about driving for an hour to meet someone for a coffee whereas here you know I just want to walk for A little bit. (laughs) So, I also love architecture and uh, history. And in the UK, I live surrounded by it Uh, deep, deep history and layers of culture. And in most cities here, certainly from where I stand right this minute, I can go to museums and art galleries and books, bookshops, and I can film my mind and I can get to all of these places in Europe just by train, basically. I don't have to fly anywhere. Um, and my fiction, as I lived in Brisbane, I was starting to write fiction. Um, my fiction is rooted in European history and the culture that I grew up with. And as I wrote in Brisbane, I used up my memories. Stone of Fire, for example, has a lot of the places I travelled to. Uh, in fact, the, the three books I wrote The three novels I wrote in in Australia, Stone of Fire, Crypt of Bone and Ark of Blood, used up all my travels from the past there. And I realised I couldn't stay in Australia. I couldn't create for much longer. I needed to fill my creative well and that meant coming back to the place that inspires me the most. So in 2011 we moved from Brisbane back to London, and uh, that will again be a future episode. I am slowly covering all the places that mean a lot to me in this uh, in this podcast. Five other aspects of Australia. So obviously my experience of Australia is complicated. I arrived as a tourist and I absolutely loved Western Australia and the Northern Territory in particular. And I would urge you to visit those areas if you travel down under. The places that I would visit again because I just had a brilliant time, Exmouth for Ningaloo Reef, which is uh, north of Perth. And when I say north, I mean quite a few hours north. <laughs> this is Australia is not a day trip place. <laughs> Uh, Darwin and Kakadu National Park, Kings Canyon and Uluru, Katatuta National Parks, as well as far north Queensland and the Daintree Rainforest, which again is, is incredibly special, some ancient um Wildlife there, the cassowary uh, live up there. It's it, that like the dinosaurs, basically. <laughs> I never made it to Tasmania, but it is on my list to hike there and dive the giant kelp forests. And many people have said Tasmania is is much more like New Zealand. Um, and of course, it's you know it's at the bottom. If you look at a map, Tasmania's uh, an island off the bottom. So um, yeah, I, I I definitely would go back um, to to go to Tassie. I also. If I, I guess if I'd have left Australia just as a tourist, my my opinion of it would have been quite different. So I, if I'd have just spent, you know, sort of nine, eight, nine months as a tourist, that would have been one thing. But then I also went back and lived and worked in Australia. I worked in the mining industry, uh, which is one of the biggest industries in Australia. Um, you know, I, I worked and sort of travel to Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and experience life as a resident of Australia. And you can have a fantastic standard of living. uh, Absolutely. You know, great food, lots of things to do. Like it really has everything you would would want. But if you're not a beach person (laughs) and I'm not, then the cities are like any other international cities, in my opinion. Obviously, this is all my opinion. This is my show. (laughs) Um, You know, you can work and shop and eat and play, but it's a long way to travel to Australia. So if you go, make sure you go to the places that are truly different as well. So in terms of culture, Australians are far more laid back than British people or Americans, actually. Uh, fair warning, they swear a lot in casual conversation, but it's not inappropriate uh, in that culture. Um, so Auss- Aussies will laugh a lot and uh, take the piss out of each other and other people. And that kind of banter is part of life. And um, Try not to take offence. I think there's there's definitely a lot more, yeah, bans. Let's call it. Um, I don't know how much that's changed with the political situation since I was there, um, but certainly there are things that are not appropriate in England that would that are completely appropriate in Australia. Uh, I found a, a quote about this by uh, John O'Grady. There is no better way of life in the world than that of the Australian. I firmly believe this. The grumbling, growling, cursing, profane, laughing, beer drinking, abusive, loyal to his mates Australian is one of the few free men left on this earth. He fears no one, crawls to no one, bludges on no one and acknowledges no master learn his way, learn his language, get yourself accepted as one of him, and you will enter a world that you never dreamed existed. And once you have entered it, you will never leave it. And I like that quote, um, because I think the, you know, the beer drinking, the cursing, the laughing, uh, this is true for women as much as men. Obviously, that quote's about men, but I, I feel, you know, Aussie women are, are, are brilliant as well. And um, you know, bludging is kind of um, taking money from the state or uh, there's, there's there's a great um, independence, I think, about Australia, acknowledges no master. I think that really encompasses a lot of the, the culture. Uh, some, some words that I found, I always found particularly interesting as a, a British person, obviously a writer, I like words. Um, smoko, I think smoko, which is, It was obviously a smoking break, uh, but it's part of the work culture, like going on Smoko, um, you know, going to get more coffee, (laughs) basically. I I still find stubby, which is a bottle of beer, and the stubby holder, which is an insulated sleeve that keeps the beer cool. I find um, these funny words, stubby. Uh, it's kind of odd. Uh bogan. Uh in Britain the kind the same word would be chav and could be a redneck in the UK, so uh, uh sorry, in the US, so bogan. Um yeah, and then feral would be wilder than a bogan. And these words can be applied to people or just generally as as descriptions. So bogans and ferals. <laughs> you might hear those. Um a bottle O, uh, you can you can actually go to a drive in Bottle O uh, to buy alcohol, which I always found amusing. Manchester, which still I, I find weird. If you see Manchester in a uh, a store, it's sheets and linen, which in England, it's actually a, a, a big city. <laughs> um, and yeah, so, and, and the phrase no worries, I have adopted as my own. I, I love no worries. It very, it, it does mean, you know, it's okay, it's all right, it's fine. Just don't worry about it. No worries. No worries, mate. And I I do love that. So in terms of some classic films to watch to get an idea of Australian culture and accent, uh, definitely, I mean, these are these are classics as in these older films. Uh, Muriel's Wedding, The Castle and The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I think those those three uh, are fantastic. The Castle, you will hear quotes from everywhere, um, has a, a young Eric Bernard in so in terms of eating and drinking you really are spoilt for choice there there is incredible fresh produce uh, across the country uh, seafood meat vegetables I mean you can throw another shrimp on the barbie if you want but you could also enjoy kangaroo which is lean like venison and uh, very tasty actually uh, barramundi if you like fish um, in fact you can go fishing in the northern territory at the top end um, but you can also see them in some aquariums a really big fish and pretty tasty. For your sugar fix, uh, the Tim Tam would be the recommended biscuit. Definitely responsible for at least eight kilos of weight gain (laughs) when I lived in Sydney. (laughs) You can't go wrong with a packet of Tim Tams on a Friday night. Uh, You can also drink very well in some world-class vineyards with uh, very expensive wines in places like the Barossa Valley, the Adelaide Hills. Uh, And of course, there's a huge beer culture. You can get, a, get your stubbies of VB, uh, 2Es and 4X, some classic lagers. But also there's a lot of craft beer, uh, as there are in many other places now. One of the things I really noticed when we moved back from Australia to the UK is how much Australians are early risers. Now, this has a lot to do with the sun. Obviously, we were living in Queensland so that you you could get up at five and it would still be hot. um, But you would do your walking and your exercise and stuff in in the cooler times of the day. Uh, But also you can get a really excellent breakfast, brunch uh, early. In Australia, so sometimes we, you know, people will get up at five, do some exercise, and be out for breakfast at like six six thirty a.m. seven a.m. Whereas uh, when we got when we moved back to England, we were like, why is nowhere open for brunch until later? (laughs) So that is a big difference. Um, Of course, Melbourne's famous for its its coffee culture, but to be honest, you can get good coffee pretty much everywhere, and I am a coffee uh, drinker along with a slice of excellent banana bread, again, responsible for kilos of extra weight. (laughs) But banana bread in an Australian breakfast is a very good thing. So in terms of books around culture, then um, a book that I recommend loads is called The Slap by Christos Chilkas. And again, links in the show notes, but this is about a barbecue in multicultural Melbourne and a man slaps a child who is not his own. And it's written from the perspectives of different members of the community. So it really covers the aspects of race and uh, multiculturalism uh, and some of the political uh, things that that kind of underlie modern Australia. So I really think that I recommend that, the slap. And also uh, Bill Bryson's Down Under travels from a sunburned country and of course, Bryson is a fantastic writer, and he captures Australia from the point of view of an American tourist. But it's very good; it's very uh, comedy. Uh, he does um, the <laughs> the description of it says, uh, "The beer is cold, and the sun nearly always shines. Life doesn't get much better than this." And indeed, you know, I I think I've, this this piece was very hard to write because. My years in Australia shaped my life in ways that I'm only really recognising years later. And I went to Australia in the year 2000 to escape the city. But what it really gave me was an independent attitude, a jumpstart into my new career that perhaps I wouldn't have found without living down under. So Australia was never my home, but it's a fantastic place to visit, especially if you make the effort to go beyond the cities to the desert and the ocean. So happy travels, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page and if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpencom forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.